0: We continue in our study this afternoon and we are coming to the subcategory number three, dealing with wives. And I'm pleased to see that they all didn't run away this afternoon. In fact, I see a few husbands who are holding on to them closely so they can't run. Some even called them and said, you need to stay. Not quite. So here's some questions for us again. And obviously not being a wife. This is where the end of the personal reflection comes, because I wasn't asking myself questions about being a wife. But then I tried to, as best as possible, uh, ask the questions that were pertinent to uh, what I understand a lady and a wife to be in Scripture and some experience in that regard, too. So question number one, ladies, wives, wives. Is my husband still my knight in shining armour? Is my husband still my knight in shining armour? By this question I'm asking if he is still the love of your heart and the light of your life. Before you married that man, you were waiting for Prince Charming. You were eager to find that someone with whom you could share your heart and your life. And along came that man who met the criteria and you were wed. Has your love for him deepened? Has it blossomed and grown? Is he still at the heart of your heart? That's the first and all important question. And uh, ladies who are unmarried, that question is still there as you wait for that Knight in shining armour. And we don't mean that in some theatrical or creative way. We're talking about that one whom my soul loves. Or I'm looking forward to loving like that. Is my husband still my knight in shining armour? The second question that needs to be asked, I believe, of the wives in the room. Do I honour, revere... And respect my husband. Do I honor, revere and respect my husband? Ephesians chapter five, verse thirty three says, however, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects or reverences her husband. By the way, this does not denote the fact that your husband is a believer necessarily. So we don't say, well, my husband is not a believer. Therefore, I do not need to reverence, respect or honor him. That is not true. Because when we get to 1 Peter chapter 3 and the wife is married to an unsaved husband, she's told exactly the same thing. So don't for a moment think that if you're in the case, if you're in a situation where your husband is not a believer. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 2, that a wife is to be respectful and of pure conduct. When we talk about honor, we talk about reverence, when we talk about respect, what we mean by that and what the scripture means by that is to think highly of. It is to exalt. It is to treat with great deference. I guess it's the flip side of the husband who treats his wife like a fragile vessel or vase The wife is to treat her husband in such a way that he is honored and respected and revered, not in a fearful way, not in a I'm afraid of what he'll do to me. But in a reverential way, I honor and I esteem and I respect not just him, but his role and responsibility before God. Let me tell you, wives, that your husband has an incredibly difficult task If he is going to be a God fearing Bible husband, because he must not only watch over his own heart and keep himself pure, he is also responsible for you as his wife and for the entire household and will give an account for such. Ladies, you will give an account for how you have brought up children as a mother, but husbands, fathers, leaders in the home, you will give an account for the entire household. And so, ladies, remember that that is not just a little thing standing before God to give an account for all of that. It is a difficult, difficult thing. Your honor and respect of him, even when you disagree with him, is essential In preserving joy and the longevity in the marriage. God has not called husbands and wives to agree on everything. It's okay to have differences of opinion. The idea there is not that everything is unanimous. Every decision is totally understood by each person. There are times when quite often in my own marriage, I think we ought to go this way. And my wife says, well, I'm not too sure about that. I think perhaps we should do it a different way. And at the end of the day, I have to make a decision. And my decision might be to agree with Jessica, it might be to go what I believe is right. Whichever the case has, whichever the case may be, my role is to lead in that and her role is to obey and revere that. Even though it might be wrong. And I'm sure my wife could tell you of many occasions where I've said, "We're going this way." And she goes, I'm with you. I'm coming with you. And then just a little while later, I say, honey, we're going back this way, just the way you said before. And there requires humility and repentance. But what God has called us to is the leader to lead, the follower to follow with joy and love and submission. And then when there are roundabouts and u turns, God is glorified because both are seeking him. And so this is so important that there is this reverence And honor and respect. Ladies, he needs to know. He needs to know that you're with him in those decisions. That you're with him in those decisions. He needs to be assured that you will follow him to the ends of the earth. Even though where he goes mightn't be the right direction. But you're going to follow him. And you're going to say, I'm following you. I've shared my thoughts. I don't necessarily agree. But I am with you 100%. Follow you to the ends of the earth. But if he sniffs a hint of disloyalty, he will be ruined. He'll be discouraged and he will be unable to lead because you've not reverenced and honoured and respected his role in that. So, ladies, do you honour? Do you revere? Do you respect your husband? Thirdly. Do I, or you as a lady, a wife, willingly submit to my husband's decisions as if he were the Lord? Did you hear that? This isn't a false doctrine here. This isn't a false gospel I'm teaching. The question is, do I willingly submit to my husband's decisions as if he were the Lord? He's not the Lord. We're not saying that's what he is. He's not a little God. Okay, he's not in a lordship capacity in that sense. But listen to this verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord in the same way that you want to obey the Lord, obey your husband. Now. Clearly, someone will come up and say, well, hang on, what if he is leading me into something that disagrees with God? We know what the scripture says. It is better to obey God than man. We understand that. But as it relates to the relationship, wives, your responsibility is to obey willingly and lovingly the directions that are set by your head. Now, I will say this. We like to play down this verse. We like to take the sting out of it. Because it's a pretty heavy verse. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So we try and take the sting out of that. But the Bible means what it says. God is calling the wife not to have no intellect or no say or no verbal capacity. That's not what God's saying. What God is saying is that there is an obedience to this man as you would the Lord. So much so that Peter dares to say, ladies, if you're unsure, look at Abraham and Sarah. She called him Lord in first Peter chapter. three. Now, we're not saying that all women in the room, you need to go home and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That's not what we're saying. It's the attitude of submission and obedience that is seldom seen today, not just in the culture, but in Christianity, too. See, we live in a culture, do we not? Ladies, gentlemen, do we not live in a culture that says to the women, stand up for your rights and be opposed to all that looks like a meek and quiet spirit? That's not what you want. You don't want to be that. that's oppressive behavior. You're under a yoke of slavery. Get out from under that, ladies, is what the world says. God says the most precious thing I have in a lady is a meek and quiet Spirit, imperishable beauty, God calls it, of great worth to him. So when the world says be boisterous, be loud, be out there like that, you say, well, no, scripture says that I should be meek, quiet, one who is not concerned with standing up for their rights in one sense. Now, I just want to make a comment because it's critical for those listening here and also on the Internet. We are not talking about abusive situations. Okay, This has nothing to do with that. In an abusive situation, let me be very, very clear. The wife comes out of that situation. We lead that person to the police and the authorities and all the rest. Of it. We're not talking about that. We understand we're talking about a good, godly Christian marriage and family where there is a man who wants to serve the Lord and a lady who wants to submit to her husband as she ought to. That's what we're talking about here. Okay. now let me just give a word of warning, ladies, wives. For a wife to operate with submission. And obedience, she will have to take a stand against her own flesh, which wants to rule over her husband. But that's not it. She'll have to take a stand against the world, which wants to conform her into its image. And she'll have to take a stand against the devil who whispers in the ears of the woman. Did God really say this? So when you stand for submission, as much of an oxymoron as that is, as you stand for submission, you fight your flesh, ladies. You fight the world and you fight The devil, who is seeking to change and invert God's order in everything. Understand how serious that is. Number four. Ladies, wives, do I operate with a gentle and quiet spirit? Peter commands the wives and the women of his day and ours To not be concerned with outward beautification or embellishments, but to let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 1 Peter 3 and verse 4. Did we get that? It's not the outward beautification. It's not the embellishments of the flesh, it's the inward, it's the quiet, gentle spirit. When we survey our culture, do we not find today that women are marked by outward fashions? Do we not see attitudes of pride? Do we not see pursuits of power and authority and communication, which is boisterous, rude and unladylike? Has not the whole world turned on itself? I mean, it never ceases to amaze me, even in our own shop, our own business. When ladies come in late, it's changed. The whole generation has changed. It used to be that ladies were still reasonably ladylike in their manner, in how they dress. What has happened? What's happened is the devil has got a foot in our culture and he has conformed women to his image rather than to that which is moral and upright. Bring back ladylike attitudes and behaviours, God says. It's the inward, not the outward. That is absolutely critical. But then number five, and ladies, wives, you'll be pleased to know that the men had eleven Points, questions. You have six. But they're still hard. Number five. This is a really important question. Am I, as a wife, preoccupied with doing my husband good? Doing my husband good. Now, for some, I'm sure Proverbs 31 is not a place that you like reading a lot, because in there you find this lady who has these incredibly godly virtues. And it seems almost an impossibility, I'm sure. I read the passages about men and I say, whoa, I read the passages about ladies and I say, whoa, Proverbs 31. That's that's a high calling. Right. But one thing that as I read through it again this morning, I noted that isn't often talked about in verse 12. It says of this virtuous wife and mother, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. You know what that is? You know what the idea is? In the Hebrew, it is she lives for him and his glory. I don't mean that in irrever- irrever- irreverential sense or an idolatrous sense. I mean that in true sense. She lives... For him and for the promotion of his character and his life. Every task that she performs, every word upon her tongue is for his good. She protects his reputation. She honors him by keeping the home. She ministers to those in her care. She's earned his trust and respect. She's entirely focused on being a blessing to him. That's a high call. That's a hard call, but that is a holy call. That is God's perspective. Am I preoccupied with doing my husband good? We can do good for all sorts of people, can't we? Lots of people out there we do good for. Lots of people here in the church we do good for. But what about your husband? That's my focus. Is that what you'd say, ladies? Am I preoccupied with doing my husband good? And then number six. Lastly, under this subcategory for the wives, this is a hard one too. Am I hardworking, disciplined, organized, and proactive? I left the hard one till the end. Am I hardworking, disciplined, organized, and proactive? And you might say, well, where did you get all that from? I've never read that anywhere in the Bible. Well, Proverbs 31 tells us about a virtuous, godly woman who is, by the way, truly virtuous. Here's a quick summary for you. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time. In verse 13 of that chapter, she takes initiative with wool and flax. In verse 14, she organizes and prepares food for the household. In verse 15, she's an early riser. In verse 16, she's self-motivated and hard-working. In verse 17, she strengthens her body for the tasks. In verse 20, she's kind and generous. In verse 21, she's provided clothing which is suitable for her household. Verse 24, she's entrepreneurial. That's an interesting one. She has her finger in a lot of pies when it comes to profitability for the household. Interesting thought. Verse 25, she's emotionally strong. In verse 26, she is wise. And in verse 27, she is a caretaker and not at all lazy. It's a high call. That's a big ask. And wives, that's what the Bible teaches. To be hardworking, to be disciplined, to be organized, to be proactive. So we ask the questions again. Is my husband still my knight in shining armor? Do I honor, revere and respect my husband? Do I willingly submit to my husband's decisions as if he were the Lord? Do I operate with a gentle and quiet spirit? Am I preoccupied with doing my husband good? And am I hardworking, disciplined, organized and proactive? Wow. High calling ladies, wives and potential wives too. Category number four. You didn't think that was it, right? I hope not because you're going to be disappointed. We've got a couple, of, but these are a bit shorter. Category number four. I want to speak for a few moments on fathers, mothers, guardians, and single parents. So, the category of parenting fathers, mothers, guardians, and single parents. Now, before anybody uh, might think this, I'm not a parent. I do not have the experience practically to give you these truths. But I can ask these questions as a potential parent and as one who has studied the word of God. And so please don't think that I'm uh, somehow condescending in this. I don't have that experience. I'm ready to say that. But I do have experience in the word and I do know what the Bible teaches. So here's some thoughts for us. Number one, parents in the room. Do I understand and appreciate the God given role of parenthood? Do I understand and appreciate the God-given role of parenthood? Today, I see often, not just in the culture, but in the church, parents who treat their children as though they are an annoyance, a laborious task, something that gets in the way of what I want to do. And I would like to sometimes grab those parents and say, This is a great privilege. God has dispensed to you a privilege that is above almost any other privilege in the world. Psalm 127 says this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. This is God's perspective on parenting. And I, uh, I couldn't help but see the molesworths up the back. Look at each other and go. We've done this well. How many other? 10? 12? 15? I've no idea. But, but there's plenty of children. And the quiver is full. And that's a joy. And that ought to be a joy. It's a blessing. And that's what God says. This is not a laborious task. A duty. It is a treasure that God has dispensed to you. But then secondly, the question is this. Am I bringing up my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Am I bringing up my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? And lest we think that because the children have flown the coop, this no longer applies. That's not true. You are still bringing up and nurturing and helping your children for the rest of your life though they may not be directly under your care. So don't for a moment think, well, my children are all grown up. That's not necessarily true of this question. This is the first and most important part of a parent's life is discipleship in the home. You are called first and foremost. Husbands, disciple your wife. Wives and husbands, disciple your children. That's the calling of families. Solomon says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. So important, so important is this role of rearing children in the fear and knowledge and discipline of the Lord that a pastor who fails in this is disqualified. There are many men who should not be in ministry today because they have not obeyed this command. That's a hard thing to say, but there are many. I can list many men who should have stepped down many years ago because their families are not in order. This is number one, discipleship at home. Only a man and woman who are discipling their own family, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, are qualified to lead the church. And should the day come where we have children and our children are rebellious and not what they ought to be, I need to step down and you need to tell me to step down. Because that is not according to the scripture. So serious is this matter of rearing children. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4 I want to add in a word here, since I'm already possibly offending some people, I'll uh, just go the whole full gamut. One thing that really bothers me, and again, I'm not a parent. Maybe it'll change when I become one, if I become one, but I don't think it will. Too many Christian parents are letting this, the secular education system bring up their children. I am so saddened and sick and tired of hearing parents come to me and say, I can't believe I've lost my children to the things of God. And the very next question that we ask is, well, what have they been conforming to? I love what Paul Washer says. He says this, your children will go to a public school and they'll be trained somewhere around 15,000 hours in an ungodly secular thought. And then they'll go to Sunday school and color in a picture of Noah's Ark. And you think that's going to get them to stand against the lies they've been told. And that's true. I'm not saying secular education can never be had. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if you go down that path, parents, you better be prepared to give them the truth. If you're not in the word, if you don't know the truth, if you don't have the ability to tell them the truth, when they come home with spurious lies from the devil, you better be able to defend the faith. Because they will believe what they are being taught if you don't give them the truth of God's word. And to me, I think it's a terrible, terrible situation in Christian families that we are not bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, of the Lord. What a great responsibility. Parents, how are you faring in that? Number three. Parents, am I actively disciplining my children in love? Here's something I didn't know before uh, yesterday. Did you know the Bible speaks more about disciplining your children than it does about loving them? Isn't that an interesting thought? Now, we know God wants us to love our children. That's not in question. But that gives us an indication of just how important it is to ensure that loving discipline is part of their growing up. It's not a choice. It's not something you can choose. It's a command. Proverbs says a lot about this. Let me just rattle off some verses here for you. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 13:24 Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who gives, he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 29:17 Discipline your son and he will give you rest; he will give delight to your heart. Discipline is an essential part of your Christian parenting. It is essential. It's not a question. It's essential. And if you fail to do it, you will ultimately rear children who do not understand the loving discipline of God either. Because that's what he does to us, doesn't he? He disciplines us. He lovingly disciplines us. He points out our faults and then he gives us consequences for those faults to help us in our journey of refinement. Don't believe the lie that the world tells you that your children will be okay without any measure of discipline. Stop trying to negotiate with them and start using the rod of reproof. The Bible is clear on that. Number five, no, number four, I beg your pardon. Am I teaching my children in the ways of the Lord? Similar to number two, but different. Am I teaching my children in the ways of the Lord? In the Jewish culture, there is what we call the Shema. In Deuteronomy chapter six and verse four to seven, there is a wonderful passage that the Israelites were uh, encouraged and commanded to learn off by heart. And this is what it says "Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Note the next phrase. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. God made it clear to the children of Israel and to the parents of the children of Israel, everywhere you go and in everything that you do, point your children toward me. That's what he said. Make sure they love me with all their heart. Make sure they know my statutes. Make sure they're walking in them. Don't stop talking about me. In every situation of life, a parent is to teach their children about the Lord. In the joyous occasion and also in the most mundane. You must. As a child who's grown up in a Christian family, and I'm so appreciative of this fact, I learned to see the Lord in everything. Not just on Sundays. That's not Christianity. In everything. When you go out in the garden and you take that seed and you show that child how to plant that seed and you watch it grow and you nurture it, you tell them God did this. When you see things happening in your life, when there's struggles going on at home and the finances are low, you go to God in prayer. And then when he performs miracles in our midst, we say that was God who did that. Every single step of the way, we teach our children to fear God, to love him, to know him. Do we do that, parents? Number five, parents. Do I provoke my children to anger or discouragement? There's two times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul warns parents about this. Don't provoke your children to anger and discouragement. Colossians 3.21 and Ephesians 6 and verse 4. In studying these out, I believe what Paul was saying to parents was don't act with injustice Don't act with favoritism. Don't have double standards or unfair treatment, undeserved penalties or unfulfilled promises. Don't do any of those things. Don't manipulate your children. Don't put them in a place where they ought not to be. Don't correct them when they don't need to be corrected. Don't be that that, uh, person who is going to enforce those things when they're not necessary. Be loving, be kind. Parents need to not operate with these things because all of these aspects, these elements of sin will chip away at the heart of a child and it will produce a noxious attitude which may not manifest itself for years to come. Don't provoke your children to anger or to discouragement. You will reap the consequences of such if you do that. And then lastly, number six, lastly in this category. This is an interesting one. I never saw this before. Am I planning an inheritance for my children? Am I planning an inheritance for my children? Here we are speaking of literally an inheritance for my posterity. Scripture says this, Proverbs 13, a good man or father leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Uh, sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. This indicates that there is planning and preparation required on the part of parents to ensure that they give to their next generation inheritance. And so I didn't see that before in scripture. And that's an interesting uh, indicative right there an imperative given to us that we need to do this. And so parents, what provision have you made for the future of your families? It's in the Bible right there. Let's move to category number five. We're nearly there, sort of. And category number five is children. Now, at this point in time in our service, I'm going to ask every one of these children, Zach, Sophie, Ella, all the rest of you, to put your coloring down for just a minute because I am speaking Directly to you. Because in the Bible, we have some clear teaching about children. So, children in the room. And we're all children, but younger children to begin with. No, let me take that back. Let's take all the children. You're all children, so we're going to take everyone. Question number one. I want you to ask yourself this. Am I thankful to God for my parents and my upbringing? Every child in the room, I want you to think about your parents. I want you to think about your upbringing, the home that they provided for you, the clothes that you are wearing right now, and the provisions that they have made for you. Am I thankful for it? It's easy to be angry about things. It's easy to to think, wow, it's not fair. Look at what they have. Look at what these people have. But am I thankful for it? First Thessalonians 518 says this, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, some of you in this room that I know well enough, some of you grew up in devastating homes. Some of you grew up in abusive homes. And so when I say this, you immediately think, well, you don't know what sort of a situation I've come from. And the answer is I don't. But this I know, it was God's sovereign plan to place you in that household for your ultimate good and his glory. I don't know what happened to you. I don't necessarily need to know what happened to you when you were growing up. But I do know that God placed you there for a reason and you are called to be thankful. And every child in this room, young person, you need to be thankful. You say, well, I've got unsafe parents. You need to be thankful. You say, well, you know, sometimes there's favoritism in my family. Sometimes they prefer. you still need to be thankful. God gave you those parents or that parent if you're a single parent or even if you are adopted. God gave you a guardian. Praise God. You could be out on the street and nobody in this room is out on the street. We have so much to be thankful for. So praise the Lord for your family. Now, young kids, this one's for you. Okay, Young kids who are still at home. Number two, do I obey my parents? Some of you are looking at me going, hmm, Mr. Chris, I don't want to hear this. Because Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is good. This is proper. Now, question is, well, who's a child? We love this. I tried so hard when I was still at home living under my mum's house to come up with the Greek word that somehow gave me an out. Because I was studying Greek back then and I thought, I'm going to fix this. Unfortunately, I couldn't. The Bible was too clever for me. Because here's what this means. Obey your parents and the Lord, children. A child refers to those who are still under their parents' authority because they are one, unmarried, or two, dependent. Dependent. So here's what it means. It means if you want to run away from home and try and figure it out by yourself, you don't have to obey your parents anymore. But in so doing that, you have no clothes, no money, no home, no school, all the rest of that, children. So while you are at home under that authority structure, God says, obey your parents. And you know what? There's an interesting promise for all the kids in the room. There's an interesting promise associated with this. The Bible says that if you obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, he will give you a long, fruitful life. But if you don't, you may go to an early grave. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 2. That is a promise the Bible gives. God has called you to obey your parents. It's not up for negotiation. Do it. Obey your parents. And can I just speak a moment on the manner of obedience? So you remember the story, I'm sure, of uh, that little boy in the church service. His mum says, sit down. He stands up. Mum says, sit down. He stands up. His mum says, you know what's going to happen next if you stand up again? And we all go, yep, I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to be very sore. And so the boy sits down and he turns to his friend and he says, I'm sitting down, but I'm standing up in my heart. We know what that means, right? We all do it. But children, when you obey, when you obey your parents, it's not just listening to what they say. It's also doing it with a heart that says, I want to please my mum, my dad, and God. I will be obedient, even though it's not what I want to do. That's what obedience is. And how we do it? Sweetly submitting to authority. The song says, sweetly submitting to authority. Okay, number three. Still... Children, but all age children. Number three, do I honour my parents? This is different to obeying my parents. This is not age specific. Do I honour my parents? You may no longer be under their authority. You may be outside of the home. You may now be independent, not requiring of them money. You may be unmarried, but out of the home. That's not the question. The question is, do you honor, respect, love, and appreciate them? Even those who are harsh, abrasive, and unsavory parents are to be honored and given their rightful place in your heart and life. By the way, children, you are allowed to keep drawing if you want to now. That's fine. I can see you looking at me like, can I go or not? I don't want to be disobedient. (laughs) One of the Ten Commandments... Honor thy father and thy mother. Honor. God said in Leviticus 19, verse 3, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. So the question, I guess, in another way is, do you esteem your parents highly or are you more inclined to speak evil of them? Do you honor them? Do you love them? And this leads straight into question number four, the final one under this category. And this one is very near and dear to my heart. The Lord has really moved in my heart about this. Number four, am I preparing to house, clothe, feed and support my aged parents? Am I preparing to house, clothe, feed and support my aged parents? And if you don't have parents alive today, You might be flipping it the other way. Am I prepared to let someone else clothe, feed, minister to my needs in my old age? That might be where you're at. One thing that astounds me, I told you before that I get really angry about what happens to the ladies in our culture these days. Another thing that really, really gets under my skin, and I think it's, I think, I hope it's holy and righteous anger, but it's an anger regarding how Christians are happy to simply slap their aged parents into a home. That really bothers me. Because that is against every principle in Scripture. Now, let me take a step back and just explain. I understand that if there are medical needs that require ongoing constant support, that's a different story. You can't administer that. It's not your right to do that. They require specific medical attention. I'm okay with that. But I'm talking about those parents who are just a bit of a problem because they're always hanging around. They're the parents who, you know what, I've really got to invest some time and I've got to go and build a granny flat or I've got to whatever I've got to do at my place. They're just in the way. It's just going to be easier. Let's sell what they've got and stick them in a nursing home. That at the foundation, at the root is ungodly. And let me show you why. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives. Now, that is speaking specifically Of his relatives, those particularly who are older and younger, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If that's not enough, Jesus confronted the Pharisees in Mark 7, 9 to 13, about looking after their aged parents. And they used this great little Jewish custom called Corban. And what that meant is that I'm not going to actually help my parents because God's got different plans, so to speak, for me and for my money. That was that was boiled down. That's what they meant. Even the Pharisees knew that their responsibility was to look after their parents. They knew that we find. That long before the pension and homes for elderly people were invented, it was always the responsibility of children to care for their aged parents. Always. And if for some reason they couldn't because of financial reasons, the church would. It always went family, church family. It never went government come in. It never went with any of these other things. I'm not saying that we're not appreciative of the pension and all the rest of it. But what I'm saying is as a church, as individuals, if you've got aged parents, make plans to have them with you, to care for them, to love them right through until such a time as you can no longer help them medically. That's our responsibility. And I think it's an important aspect. Am I preparing to clothe, house, feed, support my aged parents? First Timothy 5.16 makes it clear. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Okay, we're nearly at the end. We're at the final subcategory, and this is a quick, generally a quick one. And this subcategory is simply the home. This is the bricks and the mortar. This is not the people in the home. This is our dwelling place. And I want to speak for a few moments on this before we close. Let me ask you some questions about the place that you call home, the physical place. Question number one. Am I living like this is my final destination? Here's what I'm asking Am I living in such extravagance that someone would look and say, wow, he's already got his heavenly treasures. My point is this. We live today in a society that tells us the more you have, the better. The more materialism, the more you gain, etc., etc., etc. It's all about that. And my question for us as Christians is, are you living like this is the final destination? Because it isn't. We have a home beyond our wildest expectations and imaginations yet for us. And yet sometimes we look at each other's lives and we say, are they really living for God's glory? There is so much stuff. And I am so consumed with this at the moment in my own heart. It is time for reductionism. I have got to get rid of some stuff. This life is not about stuff. This life is about Christ. I've got to get rid of some things. Is this Living place, my final destination. Am I living like it is my final destination? Question of extravagance. Number two, is my home a sanctified place? In the old days where the tabernacle was, the high priest would enter into the holy place and then he would enter into the holy of holies. Now, we don't want to draw too much of a type or an allegory from that. But I think there is, a, there is something for us to understand. Our home should be a holy place. Our home should be a place where God is honoured and feared and loved and adored. Where things are sanctified. That we don't just do whatever we want. That we are concerned about God's glory in our own homes. In the places where we dwell. And I'll let the Holy Spirit direct you as to what that might mean in your own heart. Thirdly. Is it filled with prayer? Is your home a place of prayer? Metaphorically speaking, does the smoke constantly ascend before the Father like it did in the old days? Is the incense being burned, so to speak, from your dwelling place? And that the nostrils of God smell a sweet smelling savor of your prayer life? Is it a place of prayer? Number four. Is the Word of God read there? Is it a place where God's Word is opened? Where the truth is taught from around the dinner table, off, on the, around the coffee table, on the lounges, wherever you might be? Are the rooms places where the Word is read? Number five, here is one we neglect, I believe. Those other ones might be okay so far, but here's one we neglect. Are our homes familiar with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs being sung to the Lord? Did you know that one of the proofs of a spirit filled life is that you speak to yourselves in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs? Is your house a house of God's melodies? When did you last call the inhabitants together and say, you know what, let's sing. Let's sing praise. It doesn't matter that I can't play the guitar. It doesn't matter that I can't hold a tune. God is not concerned about that. What God is concerned is that from within me comes praise. That my life would be a song of praise before Him. Are your walls familiar with the sound of music bouncing off them? I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about godly, Christian, uplifting music in them. You say, I haven't got any song books. Come see me, I'll give you some. I don't have any CDs to listen. I'll give you some. Because our homes need to be that kind of place. Music is a powerful medium in our worship towards God. Number six, does purity reside there? We've mentioned that. Is it a place of purity and holiness? Number seven, move through these last couple quickly. What is watched? What is listened to? What is talked about in the walls of your home? Nobody else sees it, just your family. What is the subject of your discussions? If the walls had ears, what would they report? Think about that for a moment. Would they report bitterness and strife and envy? Would they report malice and slander about other people? Or would they report of the attributes of God that are constantly spoken of? What is watched, listened to and talked about? What about number eight? Very practical. Do the posters and the wall hangings and the tapestries bring honor to the Lord? Well, I don't know. They're just pictures I bought. Yeah, but do they bring honor to the Lord or are they making you or causing you to think things that are wrong? What about these teenagers in the room? What kind of posters are hanging on your wall? Are they posters that turn your heart towards God or are they posters that turn your heart towards worldly things? Parents, what's hanging on the walls at home? Number nine, is my home a place of decency and order? Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that in every sense and all the time, everything must have a perfect place and we can't live like that. We are human beings. I understand that. But the general outworking of our life ought to be decency and an order. And the reason for that is because that's who God is. When you get to heaven, you're not going to find dirty socks lying around all over the place. You're not. You're not going to find things out of order because God is a God of order. And so our homes ought to represent And be similar to that theology that relates to God. Again, sure, we live lives. There's children involved. There's mud poured in through the house and all kinds of stuff. But do we live like that? Or are we living in a general sense of decency and in order? Number 10, one to go after this. Is my home a place of hospitality? Do I welcome the strangers? Understanding that I could be entertaining angels... Unawares, Hebrews tells us. Is my home hospitable? Or is it, hey, this is my world, you've got your world? I'll come out and see you on a Sunday morning at the church service and we'll we'll have a good time here, but hey, don't enter my world. I won't enter yours. We'll, we'll have a, a healthy distance, the world says. okay, That's not Christianity. They went from house to house with one another. And they broke bread together. And they shared and they talked and they discussed. And everything about their Christian life was before one another. That's the Christianity. That's the church that we're looking for. And our homes need to be a place of hospitality. I'm sorry I've st- stolen Peter and Judy's opportunity to be hospitable at... Uh, uh, Brie and Haley's house, I think it was. Is that right? You guys were going to have lunch today together? Sorry, I stole that. But hospitality, that is what we're after. Hospitality, that's what God is after in our homes. And then lastly, and this is very confronting, this question, I think. If your home and if my home were on display in its full transparency, here's the question. Is there any aspect... Of my home that I would be ashamed of if it were seen publicly? Is there any aspect of my home that I would be ashamed of if it were seen publicly? At the end of the day, that is a good determining factor because if I would be ashamed of it, there's a good chance it's not right. What is there about our home life that needs our attention? Considering our ways, developing habits of holiness, begins with our personal life, but it quickly moves into our home and family life. My prayer is that these questions are helpful to you. They certainly have been to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given strength upon strength to do what only you could do through me, to preach twice on such a weighty subject that in many ways I feel uh, unable to do. But I'm thankful for what you've provided today. I'm thankful for the people you've given. Thank you that there is a hunger and a thirst for truth. Thank you that we're not afraid of the hard truths. We're not shying away or disappearing at the thought of difficult things to be confronted with. But in fact, it would seem just surveying the room throughout this preaching and earlier that this is what we want. We want to live for you. And I'm thankful for a group of people who have that desire. Lord, help us, strengthen us in our personal walk of holiness with you, but also in our family walk. Help us to truly consider our ways as we go back to our residence this afternoon. As we go and we enter into those different rooms, may our thoughts run to how are we operating in these practical matters? How do these things truly have an impact on every part of our life? This Christian life seems to somehow end up being like pigeonholes, little categories and compartments of life. But Lord, you want to bust that apart. You want every part of our life to be consumed with this wonderful truth of holiness and habits that promote and pursue you and Christ likeness. Help us. Thank you for all these people that have stayed. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.